Good morning everyone. So good to see every last one of you. Welcome. Uh, we thank God for this opportunity to gather and to continue to um, draw from God's word even as we continue to prepare ourselves because in the not so distant future as we know we shall all stand before him and I believe that the desire that we have even as we were reminded yesterday is that when we stand before the Lord that it is those wonderful words of accolades that we shall hear well done good and faithful servant and so I welcome all of us we continue with this uh, series um, he opened the scriptures and today God willing we shall look at part 11a I'd like us to read the head scripture from which this series is taken from and that is in Luke 24 verse number 32 and they said to one another did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us and this was the testimony of these two unnamed disciples that after walking with Jesus from Jerusalem to Emmaus Christ began to open the scriptures to them and how did he do it he began at Moses and then making himself the focus of all scripture he demonstrated to them how the scriptures are open to us and I hope that this has been our experience as well I'd like us to recap where we were a fortnight ago and therefore in part 10 of this lesson this is what we learned in those two parts that after the scriptures were opened to the two disciples they made a return journey to Jerusalem I hope we remember that and after witnessing the ascension of Christ 40 days later the disciples also returned to Jerusalem and I hope that we remember that we did see that the scriptures were opened to these two disciples on their journey away from Jerusalem as well as the Ethiopian eunuch and it may have sounded as though this is a contradiction for them to go back to Jerusalem but we did see that this return journey is or was a manifestation of the love of God for the men in Jerusalem who were spiritually blind as we know from the scriptures um, in 2nd Corinthians Paul writing says that even up to this day you know there is a veil that is over their eyes and after the ascension of Christ the disciples obeyed his instructions by remaining in Jerusalem until they were filled with the Spirit endued with power from on high and among the disciples that Christ opened their eyes or the scriptures towards John and when the scriptures were opened to him if you read the three letters that he writes you find that John has come to a good understanding of the scriptures and as a result he was able to draw from the typology of the tabernacle when writing part of his epistles Peter was another disciple who was among these eleven in Luke 24 44-45 whom Christ opened his understanding to and we did see in our last lesson that before this Peter had not known the scriptures as we saw in his experiences and some of the examples that we did look at he could not countenance the death of Christ it was unbelievable for him it was not something that he was willing to accept and we also did see that three times he denied Jesus when the news about the resurrection of Christ came to him and the rest he had to go in person to ascertain that it is true his body was not there 
And you know the scriptures say that they did not believe the report that the women gave. In other words, there was unbelief. And Peter is among them. But when the scriptures were opened to him, there is a transformation in Peter's life as he relied wholly on the Old Testament scriptures to point the Jews to Christ. This time around in Acts chapter number 2, it was not his impulses, his opinions, or goodwill that mattered. And after Christ opened the scriptures to him, although he had his set of flaws and gaps, we find that Peter understood and subsequently taught the scriptures rightly divided. And I want to believe that that is the same um, attitude we are to have. That even as we continue, if we have gaps in terms of understanding the scriptures, let us be encouraged. We are in the right spot. And that as we continue, the Lord will open the scriptures to us. And we did conclude by saying that when the scriptures are open to us, our heart will burn within us. And based on our faithfulness, based on our availability, the Lord will use us as conduits to share these very same truths with others, only but by His grace. And therefore, let us be encouraged, my brothers and my sisters, as we continue to run the race of the faith. It is God's desire to open the Scriptures to us. It is not His will for the Scriptures to be close to us. It is His will for the Scriptures to be opened to us. And I do pray that we shall indeed uh, seek him, even to open the scriptures to us and, you know, fill those gaps that we may have. I think in the course of the week, if you followed the lesson pastor taught, if there are gaps in the scriptures, it is not gaps on God's side or the side of the scriptures. It is us who have the gaps. But thankfully, he is so gracious to open the scriptures to us. Now, before his ascension, we know that Jesus gave his disciples this command, and we shall read Mark's account chapter 16, verse 15 to 18. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. They were to go into, the all, into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And Jesus tells them that the one who heard the gospel, believed, and was baptized, would be saved. And I think without the understanding of the word of the kingdom, it would look like this is something that is to happen even within our time today. That as we probably share the gospel, the expectation is that those who believe are subsequently baptized and they receive spirit salvation. But we know that that cannot be the case because the word believes is in present continuous tense. And in addition, baptism is a work and we know that as far as the salvation of our spirit is concerned, no works are involved. And therefore, this has nothing to do with the salvation of the spirit, but rather these apply to the salvation of the soul. In addition, Jesus introduces signs that would follow those who believe. And these signs among them are 
casting out demons, speaking in new tongues, laying hands on the sick and they will get well. You know, if they drink anything deadly, Jesus says it will not hurt them. And we might be tempted to try this, but I submit to us that if we were to do that, then we would be acting in unbelief because signs are purely for the Jews. And we know that from 1 Corinthians 1.22. And you just need to open your television set to see how much of this is happening today. And why is that happening? It is because the scriptures have not yet been opened to those who are doing this. And I'm sure all of us were there at some point, but God in his grace and mercy has brought us to this understanding. And so Christ is sending his disciples to the Jews. And therefore this is a commission, so to speak, that is specifically for the Jew. But before the disciples could embark on this mandate, Christ instructs them in Acts 1.8 to wait in Jerusalem. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. I am persuaded, dear friends, that this was a literal instruction. In other words, the Jerusalem, the Judea, and the Samaria were places that these disciples were to be witnesses of Christ in. The reason I say that is because as we grew up as believers, we were told Jerusalem is the place you come from. So if you come from Kikuyu, that was your Jerusalem, you know, and then Judea would be somewhere further, and then Samaria would be even further, and then to the end of the earth. But I want to believe that these were literal places that the disciples were to go to. I don't find anything figurative in these three places. These are places that in scripture the disciples had to go to. And if you compare this instruction to the instruction that Jesus gave in the gospel, he had instructed them. They were not to go to any other place apart from the lost sheep of the house of Israel because the offer of the kingdom of the heavens was for the Jew and that is the focus at the time. And even here, Jesus is telling them now they can go just not in Jerusalem but also Judea, Samaria and to the end of the earth. The ministry of these disciples or apostles therefore was firstly to the Jew and then to the Gentile. I hope that that is well understood by us. And true to the Lord's promise, the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples while they were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter number 2 verse 1 to 4. And when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, he gave them utterance to speak with new tongues. And is in this what we have read in Mark 16 up there? And these signs will follow those who believe. They will speak with new tongues. And this is the very same power Christ had told them in Acts 1.8 that they would receive, that they would be empowered. And prior to this we know that in his first advent, Christ had foretold, literally prophesied, the coming of the church in Matthew 16 verse 15 to 18. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And we know that this same church is the nation that Christ refers to in Matthew 21:43 as a nation that would bear fruit that is after Israel rejected the offer of the heavenly realm of the kingdom. And therefore in this passage in Matthew 16, Christ says expressly that he would build his church on the rock. The revelation that he is a Christ, the son of the living God. In a manner of speaking, Christ will build the church on himself. And the inception of the church, therefore, happened on the day of Pentecost. And when this was incepted on the day of Pentecost, the church comprised the 120 that were in the upper room. And after being filled with the Holy Spirit, we find that Peter gave his first message. And this message was to hear us who are predominantly Jews. If you read Acts chapter number 2, Peter is not speaking to Gentiles. But Peter is speaking to Jews. And the end of his, at the end of his message in verse 37 and 38, he tells them, this is what the scriptures record, rather, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember that in Mark 16 when Jesus sends them, he tells them that he who believes and is baptized will be saved. And therefore as these um, hearers ask Peter what they were to do, Peter did not mince his words. He tells them exactly what they needed to do. They needed to repent. These were not lost people. These are people who had spiritual perception because to repent is to change mind, right? And also he tells them that they were to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the same gift that they had received in the upper room. Now in Greek, that phrase cut to the heart means to pierce thoroughly figuratively, to agitate violently, vehemently, to prick. And therefore the Jews, having been pierced thoroughly by the message that was brought by Peter, that was rightly divided for that matter, they asked Peter, what shall we do? And he guided them as to what they needed to do. And if you remember the scriptures in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. You know, it pierces. And I wonder, is that the experience that we have as we study the scriptures on a day-to-day -day basis? Do we find God's, God's word for that matter piercing us, confronting matters that don't sit correctly with him? I want to pray and believe that that is our experience. And therefore, every so often, that should be our question. Lord, what shall we do? What shall I do for that matter? And skipping to verse 41 to 47, and this was an interesting passage for me to just study further. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 
3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And if you skip to 46 to 47, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. The reason I say it was interesting is because this first church that we find here just means is a Greek word ecclesia, as I think Pastor emphasized yesterday. But Peter is speaking to the Jews. There are no Gentiles involved in this case. And you know the word church just means an assembly. And the assembly that we are reading about here is an assembly of Jews. These are Jews who had already believed on Jesus Christ. And for that matter, they had spirit salvation. But with respect to who Christ is, they had rejected him. But as we see as a result of the message that Peter brought, the scriptures tells us that about 3,000 souls were added to them, added to the many Jews who had believed Christ during his first advent. And therefore, this is not the church comprising the Gentiles that probably we would have expected or as I had previously uh, thought. And does it not interest us that the scripture says, 3,000 souls. Why souls? Why not 3,000 spirits for that matter? We know the Hebrew word and the Greek word for soul and life are one and the same. And you know, these believing Jews for that matter, they had now been taught who Christ is. He is the anointed one to rule. And I want to believe that they had indeed come to that place of embracing him as such. And we see this assembly of believing Jews growing in their numbers. In fact, the scriptures tell us that the Lord added to them daily those who are in the process of being saved. So we are talking about matters to do with the salvation of the soul here, not the salvation of the spirit. I want to hope that that is not confusing to us. Thankfully, in the days to come, this will even get more clearer. And now skipping Acts 3, 4, 5. Let's go to Acts chapter number 6, verse 1 to 4. Remember we are on the series, he opened the scriptures. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You know, friends, growth comes with its own set of challenges. And this assembly that we are reading about were not exempt either. We find that the Hellenists, speaking of the Greek-speaking Jews, 
they lodged a complaint against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. I want to presume this is the daily distribution of food. And you know, left unchecked, this legitimate complaint had the potential to bring a derailment, a destruction to the work that the apostles were doing because in verse 2 they say, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. This had the potential to bring a destruction. And the apostles give an instruction that they were to look for seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and they would be given the assignment to serve tables. I don't know if this is the criteria that works nowadays, that if you want to appoint people to serve tables, that you would look for men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, to appoint them over this task. I doubt it hardly happens nowadays, but I hope that we can see that this was a very serious affair, that the apostles could not take chances. And going by the response, the multitude was well pleased with the direction that the apostles had given. Because we read in verse 5 to 7, And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicana, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. You know, just to emphasize how serious a matter this was, having appointed these seven men, they had to be prayed over. They had to be laid hands on for a task of serving tables. But the beauty about all this is that having sorted this matter, the results were evident. The word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Let us be reminded that the church at this point comprising the 120 was ministering to the Jews because by this moment the reoffer of the kingdom was in view. And therefore it is a Jew really here who is the focus. And that is why we are told in the latter part of verse 7 a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And the faith we know means the word of the kingdom. That is all that the apostles were preaching. They were preaching the word of the kingdom. And as a result, we see that the numbers continue to increase. Many of the Jews, including their priests, were obedient to the faith. The reoffer is on course at this particular moment, and it is only the Jew who is in focus. God's wisdom upon the apostles averted an impending crisis that would otherwise have had a negative impact. Let's continue and study about one man among these seven. His name is Stephen. And even though he was chosen to serve tables, if you study the book of Acts, 
there is no record of how he performed this task. Instead, the Lord in his wisdom gives us a record of his ministry among the Jews. I wonder why the Lord did not find the necessity to tell us how he performed this task. Maybe to tell us that the focus really, as we know from Matthew 6.33, is to seek the kingdom and his righteousness. So in Acts chapter number 6 verse 8, we are told, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And these would have to be Jews, right? Yeah, every place we find signs, we know that the Jew is in view, and also the kingdom is in view. And this was a good start. But if you read verse 9 to 13 to 14, then we find that there is a dispute that arose. And this is what the scriptures tell us. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. As I was reading this, I was wondering, where is this record of these statements that Stephen is accused of? I didn't find them. And we know that these were false accusations. But if you, if you look at this last part, we have heard him say that this Jesus will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. It almost reminds me the words of Jesus himself when he told them that he would destroy this temple. And they said, and he would build it in three days. And they asked him, it took 46 years, I think, thereabout. How can you do it in three days? And yet Jesus was right even at that moment. I wonder if these two are related. But Stephen's accusers, we have been told, they were unable to resist his wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And I'm persuaded that he must have done so with meekness and fear, just like we learned last Sunday and during Bible study on Thursday, the words of 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. And because therefore they could not resist his wisdom, they turned to do that which they did with Jesus. They brought false witnesses to accuse Stephen of speaking blasphemous words 
And interestingly, against Moses, against God, the holy place, and the law. And this was Stephen's time of trial. And we know Jesus in Matthew 5.11 would tell us, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Have you been reviled in the last world? Have you been persecuted in the last world? Have they said all kinds of evil against you falsely? Falsely for his sake? Then Jesus says you are blessed. Let's read Acts 7 verse 1 to 8 to see what came after they arrested him. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, Listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them four hundred years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. This is the first portion that I'd like us to focus on. In his response to the high priest's question, are these things so? Stephen does not defend himself against the false accusations leveled against him. He does not even attempt to discredit them. Instead, Stephen used the opportunity to draw the counsel to the Old Testament scriptures. I don't know if I would have acted like Stephen. You know, it was always tempting when you are confronted with a matter that you know for sure is not true to tell people, yeah, no, no, what they have said is untrue. Is that what we do? Okay, that's what I do. You know, it's so tempting to give people the other side of the story. But when Stephen is asked, are these things so? He begins by telling them, brethren and fathers, listen. And I'm persuaded that the Holy Spirit spoke through Stephen at this moment. In fact, Jesus had told his disciples in Mark 13, 11, but when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, 
speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And if you recall what Pastor said on Thursday, we are not to be on autopilot. You know, you don't gaze in the skies and wait for a word to be dropped. You know, we came from an environment where there was something called the word of knowledge. You just, in a minute, you tell people what um, has apparently been revealed. That is not what we are being told here. The Holy Spirit has boundaries as far as his speaking is concerned. If you look at John 16, because he says of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit will not speak on his own. Whatever he hears, he will speak. Maybe we shall see that later, God willing. But let's consider Stephen's message concerning Abraham, whom he rightly describes as our father. Stephen addresses the council, the Sanhedrin, as brethren and fathers. And we know the Greek word for brethren means from the same womb. What Stephen is telling them is that we are of the same mother, so to speak. And then, having saluted them, and that's the same salutation that Paul gives in Acts 22 verse 1. Having given that salutation, Stephen speaks of the God of glory who appeared to their father Abraham. And that phrase, the God of glory, is not a random statement. It is a statement that must point us to only one thing, matters regality, matters rulership. And maybe you are asking, why is this so? Because we know that God is enswathed in glory. According to Psalm 104, verse 1 to 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. When God created man, he created him in his image and likeness to rule over the earth, according to Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And therefore man was covered in glory at the time of his creation, awaiting the garments of rulership, that is, splendor and majesty. But we know that man failed the test and thereby lost this covering of glory. And we know from Romans 3.23, Paul writing says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you know, dear friends, our hope is associated with the glory of God. That is, to one day be covered in glory so that we can rule with Christ. Romans 5.1-2 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So Stephen begins by referencing the God of glory who appeared to our father Abraham while in Mesopotamia. And by bringing an association between the God of glory and Abraham, Stephen is pointing the counsel to matters regality, matters rulership. Why did Stephen call Abraham our father? Because Stephen is a famine. He shares a common origin with his hearers, the council members. Stephen, we know, is addressing the council, which comprised Jewish men. And by acknowledging Abraham to be their father, 
he is giving insight as to their racial origin or source. They are descendants of Abraham. That's what he's telling them. And you know the calling of Abraham by God, promising to make him a great nation, permeates scripture. Speaking to the Jews through Isaiah the prophet, the Lord acknowledges that he called Abraham their father. Isaiah 51 verse 2, Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you, for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. You know, Isaiah is speaking to the, to the Jewish nation at this point, by which time Abraham and Sarah had died, and yet God tells them, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. And the call of Abraham, we know, is in Genesis, chapter number 12. And Abraham, being the father of the Jews, also features in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, Christ is the son of Abraham. Reading Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And when the New Testament opens as the offer of the heavenly kingdom is given to the Jews, this is what John the Baptist says to the Pharisees and Sadducees who came to his baptism in Matthew 3, 7-9. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. As he addresses them, John gives them a caution that just because Abraham was their father, they were not exempt from the coming wrath, but they had to bear fruits worthy of repentance. It is almost inferred in this part of the scriptures that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the Jews, they had a sense of pride in being the children of Abraham. It appears to me that Abraham being their father was a license to them that it was not required of them to walk as God had demanded, and therefore he tells them, bear fruits worthy of repentance. The Jews perceived themselves to be special, regardless of what they did. After all, they were God's chosen people, and as such, they thought that there were no negative consequences to their actions, whether good or evil. And this reminds me of the doctrine of Balaam, that was taught to the Jews that we looked at in the recent past. And you know, it was taught to the Jews that because they were God's chosen people, they could sin with impunity because they enjoyed immunity from God. Not so. We find another account in John 8, and we shall read verse 31 to 39. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. These are Jews who believed him. And he tells them in verse 32, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, Whoever commits sin 
is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. You know, this conversation is very interesting. Interesting because these Jews had believed him. And he tells them that if they abide in his word, they are his disciples. Indeed, and they shall know the truth. But they challenge Jesus by telling him, We are Abraham's descendants. We have never been in bondage. You know, in, in effect, they are telling him, We already know the truth. We are liberated. But Jesus tells them otherwise. You know, the Jews believe that being the descendants of Abraham automatically made them free. Never in bondage. They are challenging the very same words that Christ had said to them. Notwithstanding the intention to kill Christ, Abraham was their father. And it is inconceivable to me that Abraham would sanction any works against Christ. And that's why he tells them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. In other words, it really didn't matter that they were the physical descendants of Abraham. There was still a part they had to play in terms of faithfulness is concerned. Being Abraham's descendants was not a license just because the promise was given to Abraham concerning his descendants. Their eyes were closed to what their Old Testament scriptures taught, and thus they saw only the letter, not the spirit of the law, hence their strong position. And maybe we may be asking the question, why did Stephen focus on Abraham their father? And how is this significant to us as far as the scriptures being opened to us is concerned? Well, the Lord's dealings with Abraham began with an instruction and a promise in Genesis 12 verse 1 to 3. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that's exactly what we read in Acts 7 verse 3 that Stephen alludes to. And being childless, the Lord promised Abraham a son. In Genesis 15 verse 4, God, this is what the word of the Lord came to Abraham, saying, this one, speaking of Eliezer, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. This is the time when Abraham and God have a conversation and you know, Abraham tells God, you have given me no, no child and Eliezer will be my heir. But God tells him, no, this is not your heir. But there is one who will come from your own body. Who shall be your heir? And therefore the Lord promised Abraham that his descendants would be strangers 
in a foreign land where they would be afflicted. Just as Stephen has alluded to in Acts 7 verse 6 to 7, the Lord established the covenant of circumcision with him after making the promise to give him and his descendants the land of Canaan in Genesis 17 that is alluded to by Stephen in his message. And we know by now that through all these experiences, the Lord was child training Abraham with a view to bring him to maturity in his faith, such that when the Lord asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac, he responded without any reservations. And as a result of his faithful obedience, we know that the Lord makes this promise that is very pivotal even to the Jew in Genesis 22 verse 17. Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sun which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. The stars of the heaven and the sand on the seashore refer to the two realms of the kingdom, the heavenly and the earthly, respectively. And we know that the administration of a city was done at the gate. An example we find in Deuteronomy 21, verse 18 to 19. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of his city. In effect, therefore, the descendants of Abraham possessing the gate of their enemies means that they would exercise authority over their enemies in both the heavenly and the earthly realm. The earthly realm of the kingdom has already been covenanted to David and can never be taken from Israel. Reading the words of Ezekiel 37, verse 24 to 25, David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. This is the part where the earthly realm is covenanted to the nation of Israel. And because of this promise in Genesis 22, there is also a heavenly realm. Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. And therefore the Gospels open with the offer of the heavenly realm to Israel. Why to Israel alone? Because these were the physical descendants of Abraham. And as such, they were the only ones eligible for this offer in line with God's promise. And so, in Matthew 3, verse 1 to 2, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, literally, the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. And when Christ begins his ministry in Matthew 4, he begins with the very same message, Repent, 
for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. When he sends his disciples in Matthew 10, he sends them with the same message, repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. And nowhere do you find an explanation of what this phrase means in the Gospels. Why? Because the Jews had spiritual perception and they had an understanding of exactly what was meant by this phrase. They had to change their minds from their long time of disobedience and unbelief. Israel, as a nation, rejected the offer, resulting in its withdrawal. In Matthew 21:43, Jesus, speaking to the religious leaders of Israel, tells them, Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the heavens, will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And when the book of Acts opens, it opens with a reoffer of the kingdom to Israel by the church, comprising the 120 members. And this was in fulfillment of the words that Christ spoke in Luke 13, verse 6 to 9, in form of a parable. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that, you can cut it down. Through Stephen, by way of concluding this message for today, the Holy Spirit was reminded the council to the beginnings of the Jews and the reason for their existence, which is to rule. They were to be the head over the nations, according to Exodus 19 verse 5. The beauty about all this, my brothers and my sisters, is that these reminders were not emanating from Stephen's ideas. They were not his opinions. They were not his biases. I submit to us, all of this were founded on the scriptures, rightly divided. And I'm persuaded that the scriptures must have been opened to Stephen through the faithfulness of the apostles who obeyed the words of Christ to make disciples, teaching them all that he commanded them. And we end with that scripture that is a clarion call that is being given to us even this morning. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit this to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And I find that Stephen was among the faithful men. And when given an opportunity, even though it was in the, you know, not the best of um, circumstances because he has been arrested, he did not whine, he did not whine, he did not complain, he did not grumble. He took advantage of that moment to do what? To rightly divide the scriptures. 
And I wonder, would that be the case with us? What happens if we were to be in Stephen's shoes today? And if you look at the length of Acts chapter number 7, I think it gets almost to verse number 50 thereabout. And in that chunk, Stephen is speaking. I doubt he was reading from somewhere. I doubt he was reading from somewhere. I want to believe that Stephen must have heard the scriptures. He must have allowed the word of Christ to dwell in him richly. And that's the same invitation. That is our faithfulness, dear friends. We don't know where tomorrow we shall be. Maybe the Lord will allow for us to be in, his, in Stephen's shoes as well. And if we find ourselves there, then we know what we are to do. We will continue with Stephen's message next time. If the Lord is willing, let us pray as we come to the end. Our gracious Father and our God, you who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you, God, and we bless you for giving us an opportunity to meet this morning and to examine the scriptures, comparing them with the scripture so that, Lord, we may come to a good understanding of it. We thank you, God, that as you open the scriptures to us, Lord, you have other people in mind. And Lord, regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, we thank you that you still require of us to be faithful. And we thank you, God, for the life of Stephen. Even as we continue to study him, Lord, he had understood the scriptures. And Lord, even when he was arrested, that was a platform for him, dear God, to rightly divide the scriptures. And Lord, I pray for us that, Lord, we shall equally let the word of Christ to dwell in us richly in all wisdom. The gracious God, we shall allow this word to find so much of a lodging in our hearts. The Lord, it is what we shall speak, regardless of the circumstances that you, find, you, you would allow us to be in from time to time. And so God, we bless you and pray that you may help us to exemplify faithfulness, O God. We thank you and we bless you and pray the Lord, you shall continue to help us, Lord, to exercise that Berean attitude, Lord, to go back to search these scriptures, to confirm whether they be so, and that as we do so, that you shall bring us to a good understanding of it. We bless you, Lord, and we honor you. And these are our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.